know if you know this, but the way America defines success, it makes things kind of hard for a lot of people. Because the American definition of success usually includes some measure of money or wealth and then some measure of fame. And so I kind of want to debunk for you today success, and I want to talk about what success isn't and what success is. So that's kind of where we're going. I, I participated in a successful band program in high school. It was a 150-member marching band. We had two concert bands. Uh, we had a jazz band. When we took to the field in marching competitions, we always went to state. We always placed first. Um, and so from time to time, like, I don't know if you know local stuff, but both East and West Jesmond have had some struggles with their band programs of late. Now, West went was the first uh, high school in Jesmond County to go all the way to state, and I, they did that three years ago. And I was like, what? Okay. Uh, but when they take the field, there's like 40 of them not 150 or 110, and, and even Dunbar High School. So, so in, in, the ro in the marching world, in band world, there's like these measuring sticks, right? Successful band, not so successful band. And it's kind of ingrained in you and, you, and you feel it if you're in a band, whether it's a big band or a small band, and, and, it's, and it's there. Those of you who are parents... Hopefully no one in here, I, I have not gone out in the parking lot, so I don't know what's on the back of your car, but come on, when you're dropping your kids off at school, you see these cars. My kid is an A honor roll student at, ding! Or then there's the people that got all their family in the back window, you know, all 15 of them, and, and some of them are Chewbacca, some of them are RTD2s because they're like the Star Wars family. Um, and so parents will do that. I, I don't want to embarrass you teenagers, but... Parent, especially when you become in high school, parents, parents in America, parents like to measure success based on how you perform on the ACT. Like if you smoke the ACT, we parents feel a, a, a need to like broadcast to all of our friends. Or if you become a National Merit Scholar, or if for some reason you should say, uh, make a state record, set a state record in something. And again, it's just kind of ingrained in us culturally that that's kind of how we roll. And so I, I want... I want for you, as we kind of get into summer and as we kind of wrap up the church here, I want to suggest to you this morning that success isn't what you and I are trained to think it is in American culture. And that there is a strong and powerful force at work for you. I don't care if you're a farmer, if you're a banker, if you're a student. America has scripted out. Here's what success is. And nine times out of ten, what America is selling you isn't true. It really isn't success if God has anything to say about it. Um, and you can, you can mess up really quickly. And I get this because Jenny and I were on the receiving end of a wrong judgment once uh, when we were, uh, uh, gosh, we had been married, I don't know how many years, blurs together now, but Jenny was pregnant with our first kid. So she was pregnant with John Mark. She was eight months pregnant. And I was the day janitor at Rosenwald Dunbar Elementary School. And so... In my day job janitor role, the last thing I did on my shift was I had to clean the uh, school cafeteria floor. And back then, they made all homemade food. It wasn't like the food that is served today. I know a lot of you are upset at Mrs. Obama and other people because you feel like the food at school is bad. But back then, it was like a lot better. It was homemade cooking. It was, it was awesome. But the worst lunch I hated to clean up from was the pizza. They would make pizza, homemade pizza, with lots of 
sausage and cheese, and they would serve it with corn. And they would let the kids back then, they would give them giant containers of ranch dressing so the elementary kids could dip the pizza in the ranch dressing and eat it that way. So all over the floor is nothing but ranch dressing, corn, and pizza parts. Do you know how hard that is to sweep up? Let me tell you how hard that is to sweep up. I would check the calendar, and on those days, I would buy uh, ahead of time a box of saltine crackers, and I would have to crackle up the crackers and sprinkle it on the floor so that I could get traction to sweep up the corn and pizza bits. <laughs> okay, some of you are like, that is so gross. Let me tell you, it's grosser than that because by the time I was done, I was sweated out all my armpits. I had the sweat stained down the front of the shirt and the back of the shirt. I looked like I had been through hell and back, okay? And so we made a decision that we were, you know, we were going to buy our first house, and we went to the bank, Bank One, to apply for a loan right after school. So I show up in my janitor uniform, completely sweated through, all disheveled. Jenny, at that point, all she could do was waddle. And so she's very pregnant, and it was a hot April, and she, you know, so we come in and sit down in front of the banker, and we're filling out the paperwork for a loan. And boy, he sized us up. <laughs> and would not talk. We were in there to, ma to have a conventional loan. We had saved 20. We were going to put 20% down. He didn't check our financial records. He didn't run a, a, a credit check on us. And just based on our appearances, he was like, oh, no, 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 you don't want a conventional loan. You want this, you know, da-da-da-da. And, and we kept saying, no, no. And, and finally he said, look, this is what I can offer you. And so uh, that evening uh, we get home and I called my dad, who still lived in Indiana at the time and who happened to be a vice president with Bank One. And so I tell my dad what the, what the guy said and what the guy did. And my dad was like, oh, he is so in trouble because he violated like three <laughs> rules, da 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 You go back and the next day you tell him that your father. <laughs> and so I did. And we showed up. We went back the next day. And I said, like, well, I called my dad, and this is who he is, and da-da-da-da. And, and he said that you should have, he turned, be, I mean, like he had seen a ghost. He turned white. He said, I'm sorry, I'm going to need to get my manager in here. And so <laughs> he went out. Now, we didn't get the loan from Bank One, but, you know, he made, he made a determination. Here's, here's a hot, sweaty couple off the street. You know, we're not going to lend them any money. They're not successful enough to warrant a conventional loan. And so I want to suggest to you that America is the same thing as that banker that we encountered in 1998. America has got these measuring sticks, and you're trying to, you know, measure up to what America's doing, and nine times out of ten, it's, it, you shouldn't do that. It's pointless. It's bad. Okay? So I want to wade through, and I'm gonna, we're going to be through a lot of Scripture today, four key passages, maybe even an extra one. So take a deep breath, you're going to need it. It's a lot of more scripture than you ever get on a Sunday morning at Generations, I'm telling you. And you, somebody could, we may have to call an ambulance. All right, so what is success and what does it mean to be successful if God has anything to say about it? If you're an individual, one of the first places you should look is Luke 16. Jesus tells a story about 
managing. Um, and so Luke 16, and I just, I'm going to read you verses 1 through 13, and I want the text to kind of speak for itself. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money, so the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you're going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, oh, great, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. Got it. I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man said, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager said, here, give me the bill, 400. What? How much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat. They probably talked just like that, was the reply. Here, I wonder if Jesus did voices, by the way. Okay, here the manager said, take the bill, change it to 800 bushels. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it's true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your earthly possessions are gone, they'll welcome you into an eternal home. If you're faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who's going to trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, one of the key teachings of this passage that Jesus is, 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 is uh, setting forth is this idea that not just the money and possessions that you have, but everything that you have in life, God has given you. And God's expecting you to leverage it for his kingdom. You're just managing what God's given you. And so, success in God's eyes is on the other side, him being able to say, awesome job with what I gave you. I mean, you know, and so Jesus fleshes this out another way in Mark chapter 10. We're going to be over in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 31. He says this. Uh, there's, uh, he's talking about uh, a rich man has come to him, and it didn't work out. And Peter, the disciples are kind of freaked out a little bit. And Peter says this, we've given up everything to follow you, verse 28. And Je Jesus replies to Peter, yes, yes. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be greatest then. And he says this in Luke 9. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. 
And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. So, wealth and fame are kind of some of the things that summarize individual success in America. Let's be honest. Based on these passages, when we see Jesus face to face on the other side, do you think he's going to be like, nine inch nails, can I have your autograph? This is so awesome. Or, holy cow, you had how much money? And you got that by trading down the bank stocks? You dog! Right? It's not going to happen. It's not going to play out that way. Okay? And so, individual success is when you and I are leveraging what God has given us for his kingdom. And when we are modeling our lives after Jesus by literally dying to our own wants, dying to ourselves, and through our death to ourselves, bringing life in our relationships and bringing life into the world around us, all right? If you're married, there are some measuring sticks about uh, marriage and what it means to have a successful marriage. And, and some people, if you talk to them, they'll say, well, a successful marriage is when they, they like really love each other and they're still in love. Or some people will say, well, a successful marriage is if you can make it to like 50 years. Well, let's be honest. Isn't it true? There's some people who made it to 50 and you think, that's not successful. <laughs> Just saying. You may have some grandparents or some other people. Where, right? So Paul, in one of his letters, he spells something out in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 to 33. Paul says this. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Every marriage, I want to suggest to you, is actually intended by God to be a picture of the marriage between God and his people. Children growing up in a home where a wife and a husband mutually submit to one another and have self-giving love to one another, grow up to become people who can get and grasp what it means to hear that God loves them. Children who grow up in homes, conversely, right, where mom and dad are at each other's throats, etc., etc., tend to grow up to be kids when they hear that God loves them or God gave his son, they think, what a horrible God that is, that he would give his son and make his son die. That's terrible, because they don't get the whole mutually submissive, self-giving love aspect of who God really is, okay? So one of the things I want to measuring stick for you, for example, if you're married, is this measuring stick of Ephesians. Is our marriage a good picture for others of the kind of love that God has, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mutually submitting, self-giving love? Are we a good picture for that? not just for our kids, but for those around us. That's a measuring stick for success. And then there's the whole parenting thing, right? I'm a parent, and in America you're trained. You are successful parents if your kids get into the right school and finally get the right job that's perfectly suited to their gifts and abilities, and they knock it out of the park, and hopefully they become president or dictator or solve cancer or do something really, really big. 
or have a startup company in Silicon Valley that totally gets you to live in Florida the rest of your life, all debts paid. <laughs> okay? But again, that's not a measuring stick in the Bible. In Psalm 78, God says this in the first eight verses of Psalm 78. Oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I'm saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past, stories we've heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them even the children not yet born, and they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. If you have kids, moms and dads, it's great if they're an A honor roll student. It is. It's awesome if they set a state record and track. It is. Celebrate those things. But at the end of the day, what really matters is that this faith you have in God gets in them and they trust God no matter what and they grow up to become a man or a woman who values God and values his kingdom that's success as a parent that's parenting success anything else is just gravy but it okay so I church church is another thing right in America right a successful church is a bigger church this is the way we roll in America. And so we, we assume, and one of the measuring sticks we have is that the bigger the church, the more successful it is. And the, the thing is, Jesus maps out for a, a roadmap for success, and it's in Matthew 28. And Jesus says this, uh, the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. Some of them doubted, but Jesus told his disciples this, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay? Making disciples is a measuring stick for those of us in the church. The degree to which we're making other disciples of Jesus is a, is a measuring stick for success. And that's what Jesus is going to ask us on the other side. And so those are, that's a lot of scripture. And I've waited through like four things, which I never do. And uh, right, if you've been at Generations any length of time, you're like, you only talk about one thing. This is like a lot of things today. Woo! Okay. Well, success is not what our culture is selling us. Success is not what you and I are ingrained to think growing up. And, it, and without even realizing it, we operate and we start making decisions and we make plans for our families and our marriages and life and our finances. And we, and we do these things. But the problem is, if God's real and if Jesus is who he claimed to be, then at some point we're going to see him face to face. And the real measuring sticks are going to come into place about what we did with what he gave us, about how effective we were at passing on our faith. And I understand to our kids, and I understand kids are risk. Trust me, God gets this. <laughs> God had kids of his own, all right? And so how does this, 
how does this look compared to, say, what got celebrated 100 years ago? Okay, so let me ask some questions, and then I want to introduce you to some people from history. Uh, one question is, for those of you today over the age of 35, how has your definition of success changed over the last five years or over the last 10 years? Some of you actually hit district level, or you became partner, or you attained some of the things you thought you worked so hard to attain. And now that you're there, is that everything that you thought it would give you? Is that all there is, or is there more? Okay, who influences your definition of success? And who is someone that you consider successful, and why? A lot of Americans, we work so hard to kind of impress our neighbors or the people on the soccer field that we're with or sometimes our parents and all this other stuff for people who really could care less what we've attained or achieved at the end of the day. And it seems to me a giant waste of time. And I want you, more than anything, I want you to be successful in God's eyes. And, and he spells that out in the Bible about how to do that. And I want to introduce, the, the key passage for me is this passage from Mark. And, and I'll draw this out now and again in a minute. He says, but many, are who are, many who are greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be greatest then. In other words, when Jesus comes to consummate his kingdom and he sets things up, there's going to be this collective, whoa, wasn't that, yeah, they're cleaning toilets. What is that all about? I, you know, there's going to be this surprise at how things shake out and who gets rewarded and not rewarded on the other side kind of a thing. And so I want to lay at your feet a couple of people from the past that I think really got some of these things from, from Scripture. And the first is a woman named Henrietta Mears, right? Henrietta Mears was born in 1890 and died in 1963, same year that John F. Kennedy died and C.S. Lewis died. Okay, so 1890 to 1963. Henrietta Mears was uh, saved. She became a follower of Jesus at age 7. By age 13, she was teaching Sunday school, and she never stopped. And when she became an adult, she moved from Minnesota all the way to, get this, Hollywood, California, and she became the Sunday school teacher and the director of Christian education at the First Presbyterian Church of Hollywood, California. And she did that for years. But she was famous for making the Bible come alive for kids and young people. And she would get kids to a point where they would basically make a commitment uh, that they would be Christ's slave for the rest of their lives. And these kids would be like, I want to be Jesus' slave. And they would understand what that means. Do you know one of the people she got to commit to do that was a man named Bill Bright, who went on to found Campus Crusade for Christ and who was the guy who came up with the idea of four spiritual laws, Bill Bright, and the Jesus film, Bill Bright. That's one of her Sunday school class protégés. Do you know who else was in her Sunday school? Jim Rayburn, who founded Young Life. If you've ever been in a Young Life club, that came out of Henrietta Mears Sunday School and camp experience at Forest Glen Camp. There was another young, impressionable person who got instructed uh, by her 
and he founded one of the most famous evangelistic associations known in America. His name's Billy Graham. He wrote of her later on in life, I doubt if any other woman outside my wife and mother has, has had a much, such a marked influence on my life. She is certainly one of the greatest Christians I have ever known, period. Henrietta Mears. And then, when uh, I was younger, there was this guy who was the chaplain of the Senate that seemed like he was the chaplain of the Senate forever, named Richard Halverson, another one of her Sunday school protégés, okay? You don't, how many of you knew about Henrietta Mears when you came in the door today? Two. Guess what? On the other side, I'm putting money that, like, she's in charge of a buttload of stuff. <laughs> okay? I'm going to go out on our thing today, and I'm going to say that Henrietta Mears is somebody that we all going to say, yes, ma'am, thank you, ma'am. You know, she's going to be in charge of stuff in Jesus' eternal kingdom because she was faithful on this side. Um, there's another fella uh, that I want to tell you about, and his name is George Mueller. I told you a little bit about him already. George, George Mueller lived the better part of a century. So he, li he was born in 18, what was it, 1805. He died in 1898, so he lived to be 92 years old. Not bad for the 1800s. He saw the Great Awakening of 1859. I mean, he lived through it, saw it, participated in it. He did follow-up work for D.L. Moody, who was the famous Chicago preacher. He preached for Charles Spurgeon. This guy, Richard. He inspired the missionary faith of Hudson Taylor. I mean, the Hudson Taylor, okay? He spent most of his life in this little church in Bristol, England, okay? 66 years he ministered there. Um, and he had this idea that he wanted people to have scripture knowledge. That was a big thing for him. Going to have scripture knowledge. Got to have scripture knowledge. And he, one of the roadblocks that he kept coming up against is there were all these kids and their parents had died and they were kind of out on the streets. And it was hard to teach them the scriptures when they were hungry and they didn't have a place to sleep at night. So, fine, you know, we'll build houses for them and we'll give them a home and give them a place to to live and put clothes on their back. And he started orphanages only because he wanted to get scripture knowledge in their heads. And he ended up starting five different orphan houses. And he had over 10,000 orphans over his lifetime that he cared for. Historians say that it was his uh, endeavors in starting orphanages in England that inspired the nation to begin to care for you know, children whose parents had died. And so uh, 50 years later, over 100,000 orphans were cared for in England alone because of this thing he had. He just wanted scripture knowledge in him. But we got to get him clothed and get him fed and get him in someplace warm in order to teach him some scripture. It's a practical thing for him. Okay? Uh, this is one, he was, he would, uh, he did not finance these uh, orphanages the way you and I would think to do it, like have big capital campaigns and get some big donors in and have everything kind of lined up in a five-year track. He just kind of like, hey God, we need something. And then boom, it happened. So one such instance of that is this, this little story right here. The children are dressed and ready for school, but there's no food for them to eat, the house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller. George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at tables. 
He thanked God for the food and waited. George knew God would provide food for the children, as he always did. Within minutes, a baker knocked at the orphanage door. Mr. Mueller, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew that you would need bread this morning. I got up extra early and baked three batches for you. I'll bring it in. Soon there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. He asked George if he could use some free milk. George smiled as the milkman brought in 10 large cans of milk, and it was just enough for 300 thirsty children. How many of you knew of George Mueller before you walked in through the doors today? Okay, five of you, six of you. I'm telling you, when he died, when he died, the town of Bristol, England literally shut down, okay? They lined the funeral route, and at Orphanage House Number 3, a thousand men and women who had been orphans as young people gathered in this a second time to mourn the loss of their second father. You know, they'd already lost their first dad, and now they felt like they had lost their second dad. George Mueller is said to have read the Bible cover to cover in his lifetime 200 times. 200 times. And he literally prayed in millions of dollars in today's dollars, in today's currency, for those orphans. I, many who are greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be greatest then. I'm telling you, success is not what America sells you and me. And George and Henrietta Mears, I'm telling you, they're going to be big and famous on the other side because of their faithfulness to live out what is described in here and model in a very real way a life that is, looks like, smells like, tastes like Jesus, right? That's what I want.